0: Thank you for tuning in. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom.
1: Hello and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee the will get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history, We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. In today's episode, History's Hook will be unpacking a story 80 years in the making. It has all the elements of a best-selling novel, a story first set in the 1930s in rural Tennessee that tells of love, war, tragedy, loss, renewal, and rediscovery. Today, I'm joined remotely by two people who are integral to this story. Winder Heller is a native of Washington, D.C. and grew up outside of the district in Kensington, Maryland. His mother was a native of and grew up in Murray County, Tennessee, where History's Hook is located. And Mr. Heller spent childhood summers here before graduating from Vanderbilt University and Johns Hopkins University. He currently lives in and is joining us from Bethesda, Maryland. I'm also joined by Mr. John Whiteside. Mr. Whiteside was born in Columbia, Tennessee. During his teen years, his family moved to St. Louis, Missouri. He graduated from the University of Missouri and Missouri University. He's practiced law in Columbia, Missouri since the early 1980s and joins us from his home in Rocheport, Missouri. Both Messrs. Whiteside and Heller consider their annual visits to Columbia, Tennessee as a homecoming. Mr. Whiteside, Mr. Heller, welcome to History's Hook.
2: Hi, Tom. Thank, nice to be here.
1: Good morning, Tom. We are going to start this story with an old Army trunk. In the Murray County Archives storage room is a wooden trunk. It's not ornate. It's a rectangular wooden box. It has iron uh, enclosures and clasps, painted green and stenciled in black letters on the top. It says Captain Joseph L. Whiteside. John Whiteside, that was your father's World War II trunk. Uh, tell us a little about his service in the war.
3: Um, my father was in ROTC at Auburn, and then and then when he was when he graduated from Auburn, he went to work for Monsanto, uh, and which was how he uh, was eventually he eventually came to be in Columbia, Tennessee, in 1938. Uh, after the uh, at at the phosphorus the elemental phosphorus plant located near Columbia. Um, he, after, after Pearl Harbor, um, he actually had a deferment his boss, his boss called him into his office, said, um, I have your deferment here because you work in a defense related or necessary industry. And my father thought about it for, according to him, three seconds, turned it down and said, I'm going with all my friends. Uh, he ended up in Europe, uh, After he he originally worked on a shore battery in Massachusetts, then shortly after D Day, they um, his his unit was sent to England, where they, according to him, learned to shoot some different kind of artillery piece, and then crossed over into France um, at Omaha Beach, actually, in September of forty four, then made their way through France, Belgium, Holland. Um, became involved in um, the Battle of the Bulge, actually, uh, and and finished the war in Germany.
1: That's amazing. When did he meet your mother?
3: My mother graduated from the University of North Carolina um, after spe- she actually spent six years going to school in North Carolina, four of them at St. Mary's in Raleigh and two at UNC. Um uh, she graduated in 1940 and and returned to Columbia, Tennessee, uh, where she had a job eventually at Commerce Union Bank. I, my mother and father met one another sometime during that period. Uh, and in at 927 West 7th Street, actually, Miss Carrie Williamson's boarding house, where my father and his friend Riley Broadwell lived. Um, and and my mother and her mother came to call on Miss Carey. My father came down the steps and saw her.
1: Interesting. So uh, we're talking before the war, then. They before were the war, just before the war. So your mother was right. Mary Jane Yateman. Now we sh- we should mention a little bit about the Yateman family. They're they're in, important, I think, to Murray County's history. Um, your family goes back several generations here, um, to, and can, uh, are connected to the Polk family. Uh, our listeners mm-hmm. are, are quite familiar with the Pokes. You can't talk about Murray County, Tennessee without crossing their path at, at some point in time. Um, so tell us a little bit about your family and how, how they came to be in Tennessee. And, uh, uh we'll circle back to your mother here in, in just a minute. Uh,
3: the, the, the four sons, I, I think of William Polk, uh, including my great great grandfather, Lucius Junius Polk, were um, the beneficiary of a gift from their father of a couple of thousand, tw- maybe twenty five hundred acres each in Murray County, uh, near what was at the time Ashwood, Missouri. Uh, and and Rattle and Snap was one of the one of the houses. I think that the George Polk and his family lived there. Lucius Junius Polk and his family lived at Hamilton Place. And then there was Ashwood Hall, where I think, I'm not sure, Leonidas maybe lived there, which is across uh, the highway from um, St. John's Episcopal Church. Um, the the some and the cemetery there is where my mother and father and all of mother's um, ancestors are buried.
1: It's an incredible place to to visit. There's a real feeling of history, place of history uh, in, in that space. It's pretty pretty incredible. So that's the family that's that fine. your your mother is born into. Uh, Lucius Polk, as you mentioned, was the one of those brothers that first came here, I think, in the early 1830s. He, he became a Tennessee state legislator, I know, uh, and was a, a major breeder of thoroughbred horses uh, in his time. Uh, he was a, a well-known character and married Andrew Jackson's niece in the White House during the oh, Jackson administration. In 1832. Pretty, pretty incredible. Pretty, pretty neat story. And all those folks are buried again at St. John's Church uh, in in Ashwood, Tennessee. So, we, so we, have,
3: we have the diamond from the from uh, the wedding at the White House,
1: which I, I had a chance to to take a look at. It's pretty incredible. So yeah. so neat that I mean, you have the nice. artifacts that you have from your family.
3: Right, we're, we're keepers of things. <laughs> I inherited that.
1: So, so your mother was, uh, sort of ensconced in, in Murray County, uh, here growing up here, uh, as part of that, part of that family that could claim generations in this space. And you said she worked at Commerce Union Bank, uh, right. uh just prior to the war. Um, what was her role there? Any idea what she did at the bank?
3: She was a teller.
1: She was a teller there, um, which would suit her perfectly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's shift gears for, for just a second. Um, And our second guest, Winder Heller, you and I became acquainted because you were researching your family history uh, that passes through Murray County and wanted to know more about a family member, Elijah Haynes Ayers III. Mr. Heller, tell us about the life of Haynes Ayers.
2: Yes, uh, Haynes Ayers, born in or on April 24th, 1913 in Spring Hill and grew up. But Spring Hill today is a lot different than Spring Hill basically 100 years ago in the 1920s. When he grew up, it was a mainly agricultural centerpiece community. And um, the train station is located about a mile from the center of the town at that point. And it was a rural, uh, fair, cattle Oriented, uh, bring the coal to up from the basement in the school building type of existence. He went to the um, uh, military academy that was located right in Spring Hill, Branham and Hughes, and graduated in uh, there from in 1932. And then had an adventure. He went out to California by train to the Page Military Academy in Los Angeles and was a sports director at the camp for a year came back well actually while there he took some classes at uh, monica Monica, um, community college and then enrolled at vanderbilt graduating in 1936. his grandfather had started the spring hill bank in spring hill in 1902 and his father uh, grew up as a banker and he was destined to be a banker as well. So in 1936, he came to Columbia and started working at Commerce Union Bank.
1: So that's where our story converges. Uh, uh, Tell our audience, uh, how are you connected to Haynes Ayers?
2: My mother, it was the oldest of three children,
1: and uh,
2: her younger brother was Haynes Ayers Jr. There was no thirds in the family, kind of strange. It was His grandfather was Elijah Haynes Ayers. His father was Elijah Haynes Ayers Jr. As soon as the grandfather died, he was called Elijah Haynes Ayers Jr. So there's never a third in the realm of possibility anywhere along the line. And uh, uh, my mother grew up uh, in Spring Hill, always loved Spring Hill, and uh, went to Central High School in Columbia, graduating in 1928, Left, uh, uh, got married in 1934, and then never returned full-time to Tennessee, but came back to Middle Tennessee literally every summer from 1942 until 1955 to Columbia. Mm -hmm. My older brothers essentially grew up in the summers in Columbia. I was too young to have those real memories, but it was always to us going home to come back to Middle Tennessee,
1: uh, there is a photograph of Haynes Ayres that sort of floats around the Internet. And if you think of the 1930s you, in our 21st uh, century mindset and you think of 1930s films, he was it. He was he had Hollywood good looks. Uh, the, the photograph that you see, he is dressed up. Uh, he, he is a debonair, uh, drove a sports car. From what I understand, he had a pretty fancy car that he drove around. Highly educated, this young, successful, educated banker in Columbia, Tennessee. It's not surprising, John, that your mother uh, might have taken an interest in Haynes Ayers.
3: Well, the, there's family lore. And actually, one time I've seen a, I've seen I saw a letter. It essentially said that that mom and dad met sometime probably 39, maybe 1939, I had Miss Carrie Williamson's house, and and became a couple, and then broke up some sometime. I mean, it, neither one of our meaning, I two sisters, Martha and Devan. It, neither one of our parents ever talked about that period of time, other than to give us the impression that they met one another and that was it. But I I saw a letter when it was it was clear, and I think it was it was a letter that my grandmother sent to some someone else or or it was in response to a letter that my grandmother sent to someone else. And and in the letter, it said, I'm so glad that that Mary Jane is doing well now that she's moved on from Joe. Hmm. Or words to that effect. But neither one of my our our parents ever mentioned anything about any of that. And so mom and dad were an item. They broke up, apparently. And then, and then mother working at the bank met Haynes. Um, and, and very clearly from the letters that Winder has shared with us, uh, they, they were a couple uh, when the war started, um,
1: end of 41, early
3: 42.
1: So, Winder, you have some letters that mention Mary Jane. Uh, yeah, tell us how, how that my,
2: my family is very much like the Whitside family, Whiteside family, in that we save everything, and uh, not as much in retrospect as I, as I would like, for that matter. But I knew we had letters from Haynes Ayers, and let me just uh, project ahead a little bit because uh, uh, Haynes Ayers was a picture that was in the. The April uh, uh, whatever second week of April 1942 of the Columbia Herald Weekly, and it had the picture of these boys going off to war, and there was give or take about forty-five or fifty men, and right in front of the courthouse, and they were on their way to um, to Chickamauga, Georgia, and that would have been Fort, Fort Oglethorpe, where they were to be inducted into the armed forces. Haynes, when after uh, Pearl Harbor, tried to get in in January and February to the Navy in Officer Candidate School. His eyes were too weak and he couldn't be taken. So he decided that he would enlist. And then as enlistment, it would be easier to get into Officer Candidate School. So on April 7th, he enlisted uh, at Fort Oldthorpe. And we have a letter that was dated April 8th, 1942. He wrote it to his mother. It says, dearest mother, wrote Mary Jane last night. First words, he says, were Mary Jane in this letter. He goes on to say, and told her to tell dad everything that happened, so I will start from this morning on April 8th. And so they were in constant communication throughout the next eight or nine months uh, of his life. And uh, we don't know, like John, exactly when this relationship started. But let's just say sometime probably in 1941. And uh, they were were certainly a, a couple in that Columbia social scene.
1: So we have an archival conundrum, right, where we have uh, one family who has some indication based on family letters that uh, John, your parents, uh, at some point uh, were dating and then they weren't. And then we have a completely different family who has some letters that mention a a Mary Jane, uh, who is obviously close with – Haynes heirs And and so we don't have a connection. You two didn't know each other uh, at, at this point in time as you're looking through these letters. Uh, and, and so all of this kind of comes together. Oh, at, yeah. At the it, it, it,
2: it, absolutely not. I had no idea. I was trying to figure out who was Mary Jane. He goes on and mentions her a number of times. And then we have letters back that were saved in the 1942 time frame from both my mother and from my grandmother that mentioned, saw Mary Jane at the bank. Uh, She looks lovely, uh, things like that. He asked Mary Jane to send her some things he needed. In one letter, uh, Mary Jane sent me these things. And so as the, the 1942 year went on, I had more and more mary jane connections but not knowing who this person was and i got involved with this because i'm project oriented i love a project and i knew i had these letters and uh, um, i wanted to transcribe them and then let's see what we have and then uh, i've done that and then i have had great fun annotating them he mentions people Who are these people he mentions? And so I started spending a lot of time with you, Tom, when I would come on my uh, twice-a-year visits to Middle Tennessee. I would spend the morning or afternoon down at the the archives. And one day um, I said, all right, this is the time to try to figure this Mary Jane out. And so I uh, put Tom aside when he had a minute. And Michelle, the second in command at the archives, and said, guys, you know Columbia. And um, I've got a conundrum because I have a Mary Jane. I have no idea who she is. Can you help me? Right away, Tom Price said, well, I've known two Mary Janes over my 30 plus years connection with Columbia. And so we looked at the first one. She was too young. Wouldn't have been the right age at this time. And then he said, well, there's Mary Jane Yateman. And so we looked up Mary Jane Yateman, and um, then we certainly told a lot about her life. I love the story about uh, University of North Carolina not taking women. You had to go to St. Mary's to get into North Carolina as a woman <laughs> for your last two years. That was great. And then, uh, but it didn't it did help me. And then uh, um, I said, well, I think Michelle said, let's look at the Columbia, Tennessee, phone directory from 1942. Phone directory is a wonderful resource. It not only gives the name of a person a telephone number, it gives their address, what they do, and uh, in addition to the phone number. And so we looked up Mary Jane Yateman, bingo, said clerk, Commerce Union Bank. So there was the, the connection that I needed to say this is exactly whom this person was. It, it
1: was one of the the most fun moments uh, in my career as an archivist, uh, and pure dumb luck. Let, let me not take any credit for any of this at all. When you said uh, Mary Jane, I had the honor of knowing Mary Jane Whiteside. She was on my board when I worked at the President James K. Polk Museum. And uh, so she was the first person that came to mind, but I thought, surely, you know, what what are the odds? But to find that connection that both Haynes Ayers and Mary Jane Yateman were working together at Commerce Union Bank, in 1940-41 uh, timeframe uh, was a, a wonderful revelation. So we've we've connected uh, these two folks, and we've connected the two families together too. Uh, this is a great time to stop. We need to take our first break. When we come back, we're going to learn a little bit more about Haynes heirs and his time on the ship, the Dorchester. We'll be right back on History's Hook.
0: Don't go away. History's Hook with your host Tom Price will be right back after this brief commercial break. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: Welcome back to History's Hook. Today I'm joined remotely uh, by Mr. Winder Heller, who lives in uh, and is joining us from Bethesda, Maryland, and Mr. John Whiteside, who is joining us from Roachport, Missouri. And we are unpacking a big story uh, a a story uh, of love and uh, tragedy during World War II. When we left off, we had connected. Uh, your two families uh, from uh, the life of Mary Jane Yateman, uh, a young lady who uh, grew up in Columbia, Tennessee, and uh, was a clerk at the local one of the local banks, Commerce Union Bank, and connected her to Haynes Ayers, who is a young, well-educated uh, banker. Uh, what was his role at Commerce Union Bank? Wonder he how was also know. a teller. Also a teller. Uh the war is just getting underway uh and as you have already mentioned, Winder, uh Haynes Ayres has enlisted into the army. Uh do we know what his job was? Yeah, I
2: the the let me just go back a second and say that that uh I have scoured uh my family for letters and I am happy that we have as many as we have, but there are more out there. And so I am always on the hunt to see if, if cousins have, have gone through their attics and have come up with anything. So we have a pretty good look at what his life was like during the, the war. Um, as I indicated earlier, he was at Fort Oglethorpe literally for three days and then went to Shepherd Field in Wichita Falls, Texas, for what I'll call a modified... Uh, uh, boot camp, and then uh, was he made a decision at that point to become a radio operator. Uh, this would be geared for the B-17s and the B-24s bombings uh, over Europe. So he's actually Japan in Army Air Corps, is that correct? That's yeah, correct. It's Army Air Corps that, that uh, he went into. So he was then sent to, to uh, Scotts Field right outside of St. Louis, for a radio course they it's normally a six month uh, plus course uh with the war they condensed it and made it about four and a half months and uh he he became a radio operator and the uh, monday to friday he was in class he usually had the weekends off unless he had kp duty and then graduating in September. Uh, And then there was an interesting time frame because from September till the time he actually shipped out, which was January 22nd, they probably didn't quite know what to do with him. They weren't ready for him yet is is probably the bottom line. And so he went to Jefferson Field, which was also Missouri, 36 miles away, um, and then up to um, Presque Isle, Maine. There was an air base up there. And then from for he was uh, roughly two months at uh, Jefferson Barracks and a month at Presque Isle and then sent to Camp Miles Standish, which was in Taunton, Massachusetts, on January 22nd, took a train down from uh, Camp Miles Standish to Staten Island and uh, at Pier 11 boarded. The USAT United States Army Transport um, Dorchester. Uh, but before that, we get into the Dorchester. I uh, uh, wanted to just do another line or so out of some of his letters. Oh, please! Um, he had uh, he, he wrote a lot of letters home. That uh, he needed things. Uh, he wanted to know what other people were doing, etc. But one of those early letters. He says, uh, "Have been in contact with boys from every walk of life. Have one boy sleeping close to me who spent three years in federal penitentiary, and I think he was enjoying this this uh, mix of people that he was experiencing. He was older when he went in; he was twenty eight at this point, and uh, he uh, probably became more of a leader." Uh, He was private, but more of a leader under the privates, and they nicknamed him Father. And that was a nickname that extended throughout uh, 1942, no matter what base that he was on. Um, I want to go back on some Mary Jane comments. Uh, We will come back to another person shortly called Harriet Ayers, who was the younger sister Mm -hmm. to Haynes. And we know from, from letters that she was also a friend of Mary Jane's. Mm. Uh, and so in October of 42, she sends a letter to Haynes, I haven't gotten to talk to Mary Jane, but a minute. But the day you called home, mother called her and they had quite a chat about their boy, unquote. And uh, so I think that, that to me exemplifies how close that relationship was and how close Mary Jane Yateman had become to uh, the Ayers family in
1: Columbia, Tennessee. That's amazing. Uh, So he... As you said, he boarded the Dorchester, which was uh, formerly a luxury coastal liner of 5,649 tons, which had been converted to an armed army transport vessel. The ship was part of a three-ship convoy leaving Newfoundland, uh, this is in January of 1943, and headed toward an American base in Greenland. It was escorted by the Coast Guard cutters Tampa, Escanaba, and Comanche, the ship was filled with 902 servicemen, merchant seamen, and civilian workers. Uh, Winder Heller, tell us what happened uh, as the ship was heading uh, east on the evening of February 2nd, 1943.
2: The, the, the Dorchester, in an earlier life, uh, it was built in 1926. And it, as Tom, you've mentioned, it was a luxury liner going from Boston to Miami and continually stopping at uh, seven or eight different places, uh, Savannah, Charleston, um, uh, Newport News, uh, Providence, Rhode Island, etc. cetera. And uh, after Pearl Harbor, it was requisitioned by the government and it was no longer a luxury liner because it, it uh, was stripped down, and it was going to be an Army transport, and uh, the pictures you see before and after are striking, for that matter. But the the boys boarded, and there were roughly 904 men uh, on. The exact number is always a little bit in question. And it left uh, on Jan- the night of January 22nd in a 60-some ship, Convoy and they stopped um, in St. John's, Newfoundland. They're part of the Lend Lease program, meant that the United States got access to having uh, a base in that region. And so um, they stopped there and they marched up to the base from early in the morning until night or late in the, the afternoon. We know this because he sent a, a V-gram, victory gram from there. And then they boarded again. Um, and that would have been uh, on the 30th of, of, uh, of uh, January and uh, 29th of January. And they were now on a six ship convoy that was called the SG-19 Then on the evening of uh, February 2, 1943, uh, even though you're up in the the cold areas, uh, the ship was quite hot, and the boilers uh, made it insufferable uh, to be inside. So the boys would want to be on deck as much as they could. Uh, Submarine activity was high. At that point, the captain instructed everyone to please sleep in your clothes with your life vest on. A lot of the boys didn't want to do the, the life vest on because they weren't comfortable. So that didn't happen. But on the early morning of February 3rd, 1943, at 1255 a.m., the ship was hit by torpedoes. It was a three-salvo uh um, that uh, was fired by U-boat two two three, and um, what we know initially, we have thought that uh, where Haynes was sleeping uh, was where the torpedo hit, and so he may not have known anything hmm. about it, which uh, we went down with the ship. Um, but after the war was over, the boy came into the Commerce Union Bank in Columbia, asked for Mr. Ayers, and said, Mr. Ayers, my name is Charles Cox, and I was with your son on the Dorchester. And that had to be a really hard time for the grandfather. Uh, is the, the young man said, if you'd like to know what what's happened, that's the reason I've come to Middle Tennessee. So they went back up, to West 7th Street, 410 West 7th Street, which is only a few blocks away. And with my grandmother there, he told the story of that night. And he said that although he wasn't with Haynes initially after the torpedo hit, he was on a raft, not a lifeboat, not many lifeboats got away, but they did have rafts. He was on a raft and Haynes was picked up on the raft out of the water now this is the north atlantic in february Uh, you really have trouble living in the water more than a few minutes and uh uh, haynes got on the life raft he said that he led the the boys on the raft singing some hymns and then he let out a large cry and died he had a hypothermia induced heart attack Mm. and immediately was gone and uh, uh it was good for closure but it's hard to hear exactly what happened now the ship itself uh, was hit 1255 it was under the water at 120 so 25 minutes is all it took for that ship to go down
1: it, it's, and it, it's it, it's a, a an amazing story and we're going we're going to talk more about this i wanted to flesh out what the night was like Uh, On the night that it was that it was hit by the torpedo, it was an exceedingly calm, clear and dark night in the North Atlantic, which is a fair rarity. Uh, There were no no there was no moon. There were no stars that night. Uh, The ship, uh, as you said, was known to be in a dangerous corridor It's actually called Torpedo Junction. And they had had word that a German U-boat was actually uh, trailing this six ship convoy. Uh, so, as you said, the captain let everybody on board know that that was the case uh, and that everybody needed to sleep in their clothing and in their life jackets as well. Uh, the captain's name, the ship captain's name, was uh, he was a merchant marine captain. Hans Danielson was his name. The Army complement was commanded by Captain Preston Krecker. Uh The U-boat that was following them, as you said, U-223, was commanded by a 26-year-old lieutenant commander, Carl Juerg or Wachter, I suppose it, it's pronounced Uh, It was their maiden voyage. And uh, they were part of a wolf pack. The German submarines then operated uh, in multiple numbers at that point in time. But uh, this particular submarine was on the trail of uh, of uh, this uh, convoy. Uh, It had already been attacked uh, earlier in the day and was forced to submerge uh, by the cutters that were escorting uh, the, the Dorchester and the two other ships. Uh, along with her, Uh, and that night she now sailed on the surface, uh, uh, nearly impossible to see in the darkness. A submarine has a very low silhouette uh, on on the ocean surface. The convoy, on the other hand, was very loud uh, and visible in the night, that although it was a dark night, uh, uh, at least one of the ships in the convoy was coal burning, which gave off a huge amount of smoke, pretty easy to see even in the silhouette of this uh, exceedingly dark night. Um, the captain actually mentioned to the crew that, uh, by way of assurance, I suppose that if they made it through the night, if they survived the night, they would be under air cover from blue West one, which was the air base in Greenland. So to, I think the captain's mind, at least if they could just get through the night, they would be okay. They'd make it to their destination. Yeah. Aboard the U-boat was torpedo man Eric Posler, who prepared to fire that three torpedo salvo that you mentioned. And within minutes, those three deadly fish were in the water, headed toward the shadow creeping past at a distance of about a thousand yards when they made that shot. He had the perfect lineup. If uh, any of our listeners know anything about submarine warfare, you need to be at a certain angle, hopefully going at a certain speed. You had to understand the angle of the enemy's ship, the rate of speed in which they were going, the type of ship they had, so they could understand how deep they were below the waterline all of that math has to go into making a, a successful shot he had the perfect lineup on that very dark night on board that night was a first sergeant named michael warish who is making his rounds on the deck and as he checked his watch at twelve fifty-five, as you said he felt the ship shudder and heard a muffled explosion as the torpedo slammed into the starboard side of the dorchester well below the waterline it was kind of an unusual thing. Most people didn't hear a massive explosion; they felt the ship first, and there was sort of a muffled sound, it concerned them. But the ship listed hard to the right almost immediately—about a thirty-degree list to the right. The lights went out, steam pipes split, bunks collapsed like cards, one on top of another. The sounds of screaming, the smell of gunpowder and ammonia filled the air. The initial explosion killed dozens outright, and a wave of cold water entered the ship, quickly drowning dozens more. Nearly one third of those aboard died in the first moments of that disaster. And as you said, just 25 minutes later, the ship had sunk onto the wave. So all 900 or so uh, people on board uh, were in the water, either dead in the water, swimming in the water as best they could, or in life rafts or, or boats, uh, trying to trying to escape the disaster. The water, uh, I found a uh, an account, a report, an official report written after the disaster. They estimated the water was about 33 degrees that night, the air temperature about 36. So the odds of living very long in that water uh, were, not, were not good. Many of the lifebo- lifeboats had been destroyed in the initial blast. Others were unusable due to the extreme list of the ship. They couldn't come off the davits. Some others were frozen in their davits as well. Um, in a war that saw horrific casualties, the story of the Dorchester might have gone relatively unnoticed, except the loss of this ship saw some incredible acts of heroism. And the ship and its story became quite famous. Uh, Winder, can you take up the story of the four chaplains? Do you, do you know much about them?
2: Sure. Yeah, a, a little bit anyway. So you, you have this massive chaos. And uh, the story goes that as the servicemen would come up to the the decks to to get hopefully into a lifeboat uh, when where there are no lifeboats to be had um, many did not have life vests and so there were lockers up there that held life vests but they ran out of numbers uh, given the number of men coming up without their own life vest on so the four chaplains were, were on board, uh, two Protestants, a rabbi, and a Catholic priest. And, um, and this is collaborated by many accounts. They took off the life vest they had on and gave it to sail, to, to servicemen, and who then jumped into the water, and they themselves went down uh, with the ship, uh, linking arms together is is what you hear anyway and so the story of the four chaplains or the also called the immortal chaplains um came right down from that point on in 1948 the uh, united states put out a three cents postage champ, stamp uh, commemorating the the four chaplains there are a number of places temple uh university has a chapel to the four chaplains uh Dorchester, Wisconsin has a little monument there to the four chaplains. Um, but it's a it's it's a, a wonderful story in the midst of a, a huge disaster, give or take 675 men. Uh, lost their lives on the Dorchester.
1: I'd like to mention the four chaplains by name: uh, Lieutenant George L. Fox, uh, a Methodist minister; Lieutenant Alexander D. Good, was a Jewish rabbi; Lieutenant John P. Washington, a Roman Catholic priest; and Lieutenant Clark V. Poling, a minister in the Dutch Reformed Church. Um, a, an amazing story of selflessness and uh, sacrifice for others, uh, as you said, gave up their own life preservers. There's one account where a soldier came up and, uh, and not in not much panic realized that he had forgotten his gloves and was about to go back down into uh, the the lower decks to to retrieve them. And I think it was the Catholic priest. Uh, uh, Father Washington, who said, "Here, take mine, I have two pairs and It was only later uh, after the survivor thought about it, realized that of course he didn 't have two pairs. He just gave me his gloves, knowing that he wasn 't going to get off the ship himself so um, it, it is an absolutely an amazing story uh, of of heroism uh, in a in a really terrible moment in time." We need to take our second break. When we come back, we're going to spend a little bit more time uh, on the four chaplains, uh, talk about the aftermath of the disaster, and uh, come back to our story of Haynes Ayers and Mary Jane. We'll be right back on History's Hook.
0: Don't go away. History's Hook with your host Tom Price will be right back after this brief commercial break. History's Hook with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom.
1: Welcome back to History's Hook. I'm Tom Price. Today we're talking about the tragedy of the Dorchester and a story of love and... uh, Rediscovery uh, between uh, Mr. Uh, Haynes Ayers, who was a victim of the Dorchester tragedy in World War II, and perhaps his long lost love would be Mary Jane Whiteside, Mary Jane Yateman at the time. I'm joined by two guests, Winder Heller joining us from Bethesda, Maryland, and Mr. John Whiteside joining us from Roachport, Missouri. We were talking when we went to break about the story of the four chaplains, that incredibly heroic story. Uh, As you said, there are monuments all across the United States for the Dorchester. It got a lot of notoriety uh, nationally. Uh, I think it was a story of heroism still fairly early in the war when the United States is still really struggling. Uh, Of course, this is before D-Day takes place. Uh, you said there are monuments in, in numerous states. I think there's a, a stained glass window in the Pentagon. A stamp was issued uh, just after the war. This was a big story that I think m- most Americans probably were exposed to at some point in time. Uh, interestingly, uh, there was an effort to try to get the four chaplains the Medal of Honor. But because of the strict rules related to that uh Uh, highest uh, medal, a highest honor given by the United States military, they were disqualified for that. I think it was in 1961, uh, Congress created the Four Chaplains Medal, which was a one-time medal given by Congress to the family members of the four chaplains. Uh, w- which is considered one uh, also one of the highest honors uh, ever, ever given. Um, John, talk about your mother. You said you didn't know uh, she never spoke about Haynes Ayres. She was certainly aware about the Dorchester and what happened. Why do you think she never spoke about Mr. Ayers to the family?
3: You know, in, in retrospect, I, I think I think mother carried with her sadness about some of the things that had happened in her life. And certainly this would be one of them. I, I do know my older sister, Devan, tells a story of when she was a little girl. So this is, let's say this is in Columbia, Tennessee in the 50s, the 58, 59 time period. And she was in mother's closet going through her things, and she found a framed photograph of a soldier, which is my sister's description. I never saw this. And so she pulls this photograph out. And she shows it to mom and says, who is this? And and mom said to her, it's, it's a picture of a soldier who never came home from the war. And and that was it. Hmm. But but I think about I think about mom and I think about mom living in Columbia, Tennessee. I mean, after after Haynes Ayres was killed in the North Atlantic, um, mother resigned or stopped, she stopped working at the bank. And she went and worked for the Red Cross in Gadsden, Alabama, as far as I know, the place to which, once again, as far as I know, she didn't really have any connection um, until some time later. I mean, you know, there's like I, I knew that she had done those things. I mean, before we got into this, knowing these things, I, I never I knew that she had done the 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 red cross thing i knew that she had done the bank thing but i didn't have any idea about a timeline of all of stuff I, and she never talked about it i mean the only the only time she ever talked about working at the bank was to relay a funny story about one of the tellers who was a woman going in the bathroom smoking a cigarette and selling, setting the toilet seat on fire i that was all she ever talked about working at the bank you know i think i think there are some things in life that are just too painful to talk about and and i think that I think that mother, I, you know, it was just like another person that mother dated. She apparently was a professional dater back then. She went out with Cecil Coondog Connor, Columbia, Tennessee, who was the natural father of Graham Parsons, uh, the musician, member of wow. the bird.
2: Sure.
3: Yeah. And and I discovered much. I mean, mother told me about this. said, Oh, I, I was telling telling her about Graham Parsons and his connection to Columbia, Tennessee. And mother goes, well, I went out with his father. <laughs> just, <laughs> but I also found out when I read a biography of Graham Parsons that that his father killed himself two days before my ninth birthday. And he did that in Waycross, Georgia. And I'm thinking mother knew that, you know, I mean, it just so it adds this this element to mom, who is this, the warmest and most loving human being, probably whoever she's tied for first uh, for the most wonderful human being. I And and some of the weight that she carried in her life. I mean, she she went in the Commerce Union Bank. And she never – I went in the Commerce Bank with her, and I, she never said, oh, I used to work here, and this was, this was my – this is where I was a teller, and this is where I met this man who got killed in she never said anything about that. Neither one of our parents, both of whom suffered some in the Second World War, ever talked about it, ever. I mean, I, you know, sometimes my dad would talk about it if I asked him a direct question, and he felt like it. Otherwise, we could talk about anything, we just couldn't talk about that.
1: I think we see over and over again, and I've had the great honor of interviewing a number of World War II veterans on this show, uh, there's a certain stoicism to that generation that they didn't want to talk about what they did. They didn't often want to talk about the suffering that they endured, uh, you know, growing up, most of them during the Depression years. They went through some pretty, pretty serious tragedy throughout their life. And I think they've been pretty reticent to to talk about those, those kinds of things. So I'm, I'm not terribly surprised by that. Uh, as I said, I had the honor of knowing your mother as well. I agree. She's she was incredibly warm and kind and, and generous, and uh, it, it's been a, a wonderful experience for me. As this story has sort of unfolded, as you both have done, done your research, and and uh, allowed me to be a part of it as well, uh, to learn a little bit more about her life and a little bit more about the history uh, of this place, uh, this amazing crossroads community in in Middle Tennessee that seems to connect to history all over the the world. It's it's incredibly uh, unique. Um, but one one thing that's I, that I think also that I I ought to throw in
3: here because this is just so incredible. I think the the heirs family or the Harriet Harriet she ended up living in Kinston, North Carolina. She married a, a guy named Smith, and they lived in Kinston, as I recall. Anyway, the. I used to work at Camp Seagull in the summers. I didn't. I was trying to avoid getting a real job, so I was a camp counselor. And when I was a teenager, and in 1969, which was the year after, uh, there was a summer after my first year of college. uh, I was working as a counselor at Camp Seagull near Newburn, North Carolina. And mother sends me this letter. So this is now 26 years after, Aynsley's passed away. Um, And mother says, I have a friend in North Carolina. Who, in retrospect, was Harriet Smith. Um, and, and she has a daughter who's about your age, and I would like for you to meet her. So, okay, mom, yeah. Um, and so it was arranged by, by the mothers, mine and heirs. For us to meet on a day off that I had at camp, and we went over to Atlantic Beach, and as I recall, we maybe went to the sanitary fish market and ate there and so forth. And so, and so I meet this girl named Ayers Smith. And so when I was talking to Winder on the telephone, I, because of the name Ayers, which was the way that it was spelled and and within my experience, it was a name that stuck in my mind. So I said to Winder, you know, I met this girl Named Ayers Smith, who was either 17 or 18 at the time. And I was wondering if that has any connection to you. And the answer was yes. It's Haynes' sister's daughter. Yes.
2: Haynes. I want to let me pick that up from that point for a second, John, because I love that story. And I've told it countless times to people. <laughs> and what I love about it is this happened now 52 or 53 years ago. Right. And I, I, Tom, I asked John, John, and he may have seen Ayers Smith twice in this summer. And I said, how do you remember exactly what you did on these two days when you were together? And he said, well, she was a really good-looking young woman. And, <laughs> and I just love that. And I couldn't wait to kid my first cousin, Ayers, about it. Right. And, and uh John and, and Ayer Smith have talked on the phone as well, which I love. Yeah. It's, it's I mean, an... well, it's,
3: you know, it, the circles do close, don't they?
2: They yeah. do. Well, it, what it was is that this was certainly a, a huge tragedy for the Ayer's family. Um, my mother could barely speak of it 10 years later when I was growing up. And uh, my brothers would say my grandmother was never the... the Quite the same happy person she was that they remembered in earlier years, um, and it's it's uh, a tragedy that uh, I'm glad to, to know that who people were, who Mary Jane Yatman was, and to meet John by phone. We'll hopefully meet soon in, in Columbia and get together and uh, with some other war stories. Yeah, we'll
3: to Tom Price at the archive.
1: I hope That's you will. Right. I hope exactly. you will. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, we could spend a lot more time uh, un- unpacking this amazing story. Winder Hallard, uh, John Whiteside, thank you so much for spending an hour with us on History's Hook. I end the show with a quote from Gerhard Busch. He was U-223's first officer on that fateful night. Busk spoke at the Four Chaplains Foundation's 60th anniversary ceremony in 2000, regretting the pain he had inflicted during the war. He had this to say, We ought to love when others hate. We can bring faith where doubt threatens. We can awaken hope where despair exists. We can light up the light where darkness reigns. We can bring joy where sorrow dominates. Those words, as well as any, represent the lessons of the four chaplains and the Dorchester and our never forgotten friend now, Haynes Ayers. You can now hear all of our History's Hook episodes online at FrontPorchRadioTN.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Join us again next week, won't you, as we connect the history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with your host, Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to join us every Saturday at 9 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. right here on WKOM 101.7 FM for a journey through time. Do you want your business advertising to reach more listeners? Not sure how? At Front Porch Radio, we want you to reach more listeners than ever before. Let people know what you do and where to reach you right here on Front Porch Radio. It's fast, fun, and easy to get started growing your business today. Contact James Dickinson at 931-446-2028. That's 931-446-2028. Front Porch Radio. We can make your dreams come true.
3: Do you have a loved one who's either in long-term care or going to be soon? Are you worried about losing everything you own, everything that you've worked for your entire life? If so, we can still do crisis planning and protect the majority of your property. If you have a loved one in this situation, call me, Estate Plan Stan at Prachowski Estate Law. From a little information, I will generate a written report explaining how much property we can protect. Don't go broke just because you require long-term care. Call me, 931-363-7222.